Hello, welcome to Midland Reformed Family Ministries' first podcast. I'm Brad, which you probably know because who else is likely to listen to this podcast but uh, people who know me. I wanted to give an overview of Family Ministries, and I had the opportunity to preach this past Labor Day Sunday, and my sermon really covered that particular topic. Unfortunately, the recording didn't quite go as planned, but fortunately, I do have it pretty much written out, so I would like to share that with you on this first podcast, and hopefully that will give you a good feeling for what we are about in family ministry. Welcome. It is good to be with you here on this Labor Day. We don't often focus on the state holidays here, but I thought I would mention Labor Day because today's sermon is pretty related. It's about manufacturing. Who doesn't love a good manufacturing presentation, right? I learned a little about manufacturing on our most recent family vacation. And no, not just about manufacturing the perfect family vacation. I still have a ways to go on that one. Actually, our first little tour stop was in Hershey, Pennsylvania. Apparently, they are known for their chocolate manufacturing there. We didn't go to the amusement park, which is a great marketing idea by them, because who doesn't think of roller coasters when they think of chocolate? No, we just stopped in their store, which happens to have its own ride, shows, cafes, and, of course, Hershey merchandise. We took the ride tour that was free, and there we got to learn all about how chocolate is made. One thing that was interesting was the huge machines that are used to make the candy bars you might enjoy. And that is not really unique, that unique to the chocolate industry. I mean, we have all kinds of products in our world today that at one time probably took lots of people and more hours to make. But due to machines and robots, we now make with less people and less time. It's even true in the food we eat. I'm not a farming expert, but even I can see that even though there's still a whole lot of corn and beans out there, there are a lot less people who are doing the farming. I mean, just look at the combines or the tractors or whatever they are called they use. Now, they look like they have a cockpit from a 747 or about that wide, too. Anyway, that's probably enough of an econ lesson for the day. We aren't really spending our time on the manufacturing industry, but we are looking at how certain things are made. Well, not things, really, but people. How do we make people? Not biologically, that's a different department, but spiritually. And more specifically, disciples of Jesus. How do we, the church, make make and raise and multiply followers of Jesus? In thinking about this, I got to thinking about a close parallel type of manufacturing that our schools do, making educated students. So it seems that the first and main question you have to answer in the school business is what is the goal or purpose? What are we trying to accomplish with the time we have with the students? What do we want a graduating student to look like? Now this is something you might think has a lot of agreement out there since we have been doing school for a while now. But in just some basic research, I found out that isn't exactly the case. In one survey, I believe it was parents, they broke it down to three general goals or manufacturing outcomes, if you will. And they said, is the main goal of education slash school, the passing on of knowledge and academic achievement, or is the goal to provide our economy with workers who can fill the roles needed to provide a functioning economy, or is the goal to develop good, upstanding citizens for our communities and country? And no one option got over 50% of the votes. Our school system and government programs have recently pushed the academic achievement side with more rigorous testing and more content to know at a minimum. I don't think my generation was all that different, although we had less tests, thankfully. But when I think back to what I learned in my school days, which were quite a few, I realized that looking at education as the tool we use to get information and knowledge from one bucket, the teacher or book, 
to another bucket, the student, was not very effective. At least not if the goal was to keep my bucket full of all that knowledge. An illustration to show that. Remember that show, Are You Smarter Than a Fifth Grader? I think whoever thought of that show probably had a pretty good understanding about the results of our education system. The trick wasn't that the kids in the show were necessarily all smarter or even more knowledgeable than the adults, but the producers knew that the content of the topics they were going to cover had long ago been forgotten by most adults. Those adults likely had all the knowledge in their bucket at some point in time, but apparently it had leaked out, while the kids had made their bu those bucket deposits a lot more recently. I also read about a little survey that was done of 23 Harvard grads who were, when asked to give the reasons our planet had seasons and the moon had different stages, 21 of them got it wrong. I won't get into all the details because, well, the moon thing still confuses me. For a more personal illustration, though, do you remember what you learned in 7th grade social studies? Or all the parts of the frog that you dissected in biology? We don't remember, and yet when we were in those classes, we were graded and passed or failed depending on how well we did memorizing that information. I think schools are learning and catching on to this, but it's not easy changing long-standing practices, customs, and expectations. Speaking of changing long-standing practices, customs, and expectations, it's probably time to get back to our primary manufacturing topic for the day, the manufacturing or making of disciples. How do we make disciples? Well, just looking back at what we have tried in schools, let's look back and see what we have tried in the American church's past. Again, we need to start with our goal or purpose. Well, you say, that's easy. You just said it. It's making disciples. And yes, that is true. But disciple is kind of a churchy word and also a word that means different things to different people. Not unlike the word Christian. I do like the word disciple, though, because the call to make them is a lot more prevalent in the Bible than, than some of the other terms that we use. So what do we think a disciple is? Well, similar to education, I think there are some different opinions, but we can kind of make some summary statements based off what our churches have emphasized through the years. When I look at my experience in the church and my observations of the church in America as a whole, I see a few common themes. A disciple is someone who has been instructed by others in the teachings of the Bible, ideally from an early age. A disciple is someone who has rules and morals that guide them in everything from what kind of entertainment they consume to what kind of food they consume to what words they say in public and even when you mow your own yard. A disciple is also someone who likes to listen to preachers who give eloquent and sometimes emotional messages and, and disciples like to sing or at least listen to godly music at the right decibel level. A disciple agrees to the statements of this church, of the church that that lists our beliefs, and finally, a disciple is someone who has a personal relationship with Jesus. Now, you might be expecting me to say, and now that's not what a disciple is. Well, not exactly. Those things are all things that are part of my discipleship process, and they can be good, but they are also not enough, or the main point. To demonstrate that, let's look to what that kind of definition of disciple has led to in the church. First, lots of really good things. Whether I'm one of those things is up for debate, but people discipled in the church have made huge contributions to our world to help bring about reconciliation, wholeness, and healing to people in the world, connecting them to God and to each other. But I'm afraid it's not been 
all sunshine and roses. Just in the 500 or so years since the Reformation, we have seen violence and persecution of all kinds of people done by disciples raised in church. Anything from the killing of those who didn't believe the right thing in the 1500 and 1600s to the killing of those who didn't have the right skin color. We don't kill those who disagree with our theology as much anymore, but all kinds of differences have led to the seemingly endless denominations we see today. This form of discipleship has also led to a consumer-focused kind of Christianity, having the emphasis all about my personal relationship with God, what feeds my soul, not to mention the literal consumerism and greed and wasting of money we can see just by turning on the TV. Those are things happening mostly just inside the church. In the larger culture, we see some rejection or indifference to Christianity by young people. We see more distrust of the church and, and religious leaders, and we see more division in general among different groups of people. Okay, enough bad news. You get the idea. Our way of making disciples in the past has led to lots of good and not so good. What if we tried another way? Made adjustments to our manufacturing plan. Shifted our focus. I went to a conference in Iowa last year with a bunch of Methodists, and it had a lot to do with this topic. One of the keynote speakers was there was Brian McLaren, who I think I had read a couple of his books before then and enjoyed them, so I was looking forward to what he would share with us. What he shared, he had also has also explained in a couple other chapters that I've read uh, recently in some other books. So I'm going to borrow some ideas from him because I think he has some important things to offer the church as a former pastor and now a church member and speaker and author. He contends the church is in need of a shift in focus due to some of what we've learned about this morning. One key factor is how he would describe the way we have been doing church and attempting to produce Christians. He would call it based on a system of belief. Beliefs are not wrong or bad, but the focus has been to get everyone to agree on certain things and then use those agreements to decide who is on the inside and who is on the outside. But what this has mostly led to is churches full of believers who are trying to know the right things in order to pass the test, so to speak. Reminds me of the old joke about why older people seem to read their Bible more often. They are cramming for finals. What happens, though, when our primary focus isn't on a system of beliefs, but instead on a way of life. <clears throat> For instance, the way of Jesus. <coughs> Excuse me. It really is kind of illustrated in the difference between the words believer and disciple. I know we mentioned that definitions are hard to agree on, but I think we can kind of see the difference when you describe someone on any particular topic as a believer or a disciple. They aren't mutually exclusive, but there is a definite shift in focus. Expanding from belief in someone or something to disciple of can be a big shift. You might even say it's a foundational shift. We, uh, we see that from, our, from the scripture reading about building our house on a rock versus on the sand. For much of my life, and I would venture to say in much of the American church's life, we have tried to continually build a solid foundation of beliefs to build our house on. I remember a little while back, Around my time in college, I was striving hard to have the perfect foundation of beliefs. If I could just get all the foundation blocks in the right places with the right proof, then my faith would be secure and I could get rid of those pesky doubts. I read books. I bought books. I didn't read. I went to lots of Christian ministry groups, but there were, would always be a new ocean wave of life, if you will, pounding away at my structure or foundation of beliefs, and the sand, and the sand kept shifting. 
I see now that a huge factor was that my focus was way more on being a believer than it was in being a disciple. McLaren had a time of major transition for him, too. He came to understand that his faith was based on a system of beliefs that included an ethic of love. He then found himself at times violating, or setting aside at least, his ethic of love in order to uphold his system of beliefs. So he shifted his foundation of his Christian faith from a system of beliefs to understanding it as a way of life. And what kind of life, or should we say whose kind of life, should we be emulating? This is when that Sunday school always correct answer comes in handy. Jesus. And what did Jesus emphasize over and over and over? Love. And what did he do in order to live out that kind of love? He broke a bunch of rules. Sabbath rules. Who you should hang out with rules. Who you should touch or even be near rules. Including loving the people who supposedly weren't worth the love. Love is used in lots of different ways, so it might be helpful to point out that it's not just or even primarily about warm, fuzzy feelings, when Jesus demonstrates it. It usually has more to do with having mercy, compassion, bringing peace and reconciliation, kindness, community. If only there was like a chapter or something that described love well. Oh yeah, 1 Corinthians 13. You might have heard that chapter before in a, in a wedding. It's actually more than just a wedding chapter, though. And who wrote that again? Paul, the guy who was Saul and pretty much made it his life's work to make sure everyone kept the right system of beliefs until one day he met Jesus. Now he is writing things like his letter to the Corinthians and to the Galatians. He also wrote, Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision matters at all. The only thing that matters is faith expressing itself in love. Okay, let's get back to see how this connects to manufacturing again. So if our goal is to make disciples, and we could say that is the house we are building, and we said, see that in order to do that, we need to build on a solid foundation. In the past, and in my past, we have tried to build on a foundation of a belief system. Not that beliefs are wrong or bad, but maybe not the point or foundation. Now we are looking at making our foundation be Jesus and imitating him, who seems to be pretty much all about love. But here's the trick. How do we make sure we aren't just changing out one system of beliefs for another system of beliefs that's just about love? McLaren has a metaphor that helps us picture this idea. What if we looked at churches as studios of love or schools of love where they use a curriculum of love? He talked about this at the conference and wondered what we would think about an art or music or dance studio that rarely actually performed or produced any art, music, or dance. They talked about it a lot and they studied it a lot, but there was very little performance. We wouldn't think they were a very good studio or school. If you think about it, we don't look at a musician and determine if we think they are good or great by giving them a test on, well, whatever it is that music people learn. But instead, we just listen to them play and we decide. I'm reminded of a sermon Mike preached, uh, I think it was in the first Sunday of the year, about how we determine if how we determine if someone is growing in their faith. And it came down to, are they being more loving? So what does this mean for family ministries here? It speaks straight to what our foundation is, of course, and that is we are striving to be a place that raises up children that love in the way of Jesus. McLaren breaks this idea of, of a curriculum of love into four categories or areas, but the order can be kind of fluid. The first category, or class 101, if you will, is learning to love your neighbor. Let's look at 1 John 4 for some reasons. 
First, first seven and eight say, Dear friends, let us continue to love one another, for love comes from God. Anyone who loves is a child of God and knows God. But anyone who does not love does not know God, for God is love. And then later, starting in verse 20, If someone says, I love God, but hates a fellow believer, that person is a liar. For if we don't love people we can see, how can we love God whom we cannot see? And he has given us this command. Those who love God must also love their fellow believers. The other classes in the curriculum of love, so to speak, are love of self, not not some kind of arrogant pride, but an understanding of being a beloved child of God. Third is love, love of creation, and fourth is love of God. Now, you might balk at that being listed fourth, but I would challenge you to think about how it is even possible to really say you love God without the other three. So I guess you could say I'm giving you the thesis or purpose of what family ministries should be if we are following in the way of Jesus. If someone asks you, so what do they teach in those programs downstairs? I would be very happy if your answer was, and hopefully accurately so, oh, it's a school of love. They learn how to love by following Jesus. On that topic, I'm going to be organizing a team of people who will be a sort of family ministry's dream team. Not in the sense like in basketball, where only the best players are invited, but dream and the sense that we will study, explore, and dream together the best path forward to make our family ministries a school of love. So I might be contacting you, or if you feel like that's a good fit for you, please reach out to me. On another note of recruitment, or for lack of a better word, but maybe I should say opportunity, I'm in the process of developing, developing kind of a new not program called Faith Family. The idea is to just try and help facilitate opportunities for you to live out the vows we make during baptism of children, where we promise to help raise up these little disciples. You might think that is teaching a class or being a youth leader, and it is. But it is also going to Bobby's soccer game, or taking Sally and Susie fishing, or taking Johnny out for ice cream, or going to a monster truck rally. Many of our kids have that support from extended family that live close by and invest in their lives, but others are not so fortunate, and faith family is something I want to use to help facilitate those kind of relationships. No fancy curriculum needed except, well, the curriculum of love. So there you go, a Labor Day sermon. I guess you could say it was a labor of love. <laughs>